Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of August 15, 2013. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Throughout the month of August, we are interrupting our standard program format to bring a special summer broadcast dedicated to the ongoing investigation by independent researchers into the attacks of September 11, 2001. During the week marking the 10th anniversary of the attacks, popularly referred to as 9-11, experts and researchers from around the world gathered at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada to present new and established evidence that questions the official narrative of that event and how it happened. The evidence was directed to a distinguished panel of experts over a four-day period. The speeches you are about to hear were originally recorded, mastered, and assembled in a 330-minute video called The Toronto Hearings on 9-11, Uncovering 10 Years of Deception. A DVD copy of the video is available for purchase at the website globalresearch.ca. Richard Gage is the founder of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. He is a San Francisco-based member of the American Institute of Architects, His experience working with most types of building construction, including fireproofed steel-framed buildings, spans more than two decades. Since he began researching 9-11 in 2006, he's achieved worldwide notoriety as a leading expert on the technical flaws of the official story. His elaborate presentation, delivered on September 9th, centered on the evidence that the collapse of the three World Trade Center towers resulted from controlled demolition. So we're going to apply the scientific method. We formulate a question. How did the towers come down? We do some background research. This gives us a a, a means of developing a hypothesis, our best guess as to what happened. Uh, Based on that research and those observations, we we take our, our best guess. I think fire or jet plane impacts brought the towers down. Maybe controlled demolition brought them down. We don't rule out anything until the evidence itself rules it out. We test that hypothesis with experiments, and we analyze the results and draw conclusions. Now, if the hypothesis is corroborated, we report the results in an open, transparent manner. And this is one of the chief failings of the, uh, of the National Institute for Standard, of Standards and Technology. Now, if the hypothesis is not corroborated, what do we do? We go back and we find a hypothesis that does stand a better chance of being supported by the evidence. This has been around for about 100 years or more, uh, the scientific method. It works pretty well when it's used. So let's apply it. Let's start with some background research. What are the forces that destroy buildings? This is real basic. You can do this in the seventh grade. Fire destroys buildings, certainly, okay? And we have uh, earthquakes, natural forces, which cause organic asymmetrical collapses, as you'll see. Explosions certainly destroy buildings. And, of course, uh, explosions can be harnessed in controlled demolitions to destroy buildings quite efficiently. Now, the really neat thing about these forces is that they're very different from each other. They're easily distinguishable. And so this job actually gets pretty easy. Let's start with fires. Fire is an organic process. It moves through a building every 20 minutes or so. Burns out one area, looking for fresh new fuel sources. So when, we've, when a building falls due to uh, fire, 
Uh, and by the way, you'll note that never before in the history of skyscrapers have we lost one due to fire. But say in a wood frame building, the building will begin to fall over asymmetrically, not straight down through the path of what was the greatest resistance. But um, it, it, it's an organic process. It's chaotic. There'll be large deformations and so forth. Uh, so we know, we see, we see how buildings fall due to fires. How would a building uh, react uh, that is still framed, though, to a fire? Well, we have over 100 examples of very hot, large, and long-lasting fires in steel frame skyscrapers. Not one of them has ever collapsed. Uh, for instance, uh, the uh, six-hour fire over five floors in New York. In L.A., three and a half hours over five floors. In Philadelphia, 18 hours over eight floors. And in Caracas, Venezuela... 17 hours over 26 floors. Not one of these has ever collapsed. Now, here is some, some uh, uh, mid-rise uh, buildings that have collapsed due to earthquakes in this case. We have the building falling over to the path of least resistance. It's a chaotic process. Note that you can see at the bottom uh, on the ground what was a building. It's recognizable as a building. The structural steel components have not dismembered from each other. The concrete is not pulverized to powder. This is really important because when we look at the three high-rises on 9-11, we see something quite different. Prepare yourself. These buildings were blown up with explosions. There's thick, billowing, enormous clouds of pyroclastic-like smoke with uh, sus suspended solids from the, from the pulverized uh, building materials and, and concrete. The, the, the word pyroclastic comes from volcanoes, which, which has that characteristic, which tremendous amounts of solids are suspended in the air with a very thick edge uh, outline distinguishable from, from this uh, solid-like uh, mass that has a cauliflower-like shape that is uh, expanding uh, due to the incredibly hot gases, uh, much hotter than office fires, for instance, can produce. We have witnesses that hear sounds of explosions. They see flashes of light. Let's take a look at controlled demolitions where explosions can be harnessed quite efficiently. We have hundreds of examples from all across the country from which to make our comparison uh, because this is how uh, we, use, we use explosives to demolish high-rises. So this is what a, a high-rise looks like while it's being demolished with explosives. Uh, controlled demolitions can be engineered in many different ways. Normally, the purpose is to bring a structure down while avoiding damage to adjacent structures and to do so quite efficiently, uh, economically, too. Typically, a tall building like these are demolished by placing thousands of cutter charges throughout the columns and beams in the building and then detonating them in a very precise order, progressing outward and upward a synchronistically timed floor by floor. Destroying the inner columns allows the weight of the building to pull the exterior inward. And destroying the building from the bottom up allows the weight of the building to be harnessed to do some of the destruction. So the result is an implosion, like you see here, producing a vertical, symmetrical collapse at nearly freefall acceleration into a consolidated rubble pile that's broken up and ready for loading and shipment. 
Now, this is a feat that only a handful of companies in the United States can accomplish. And fire, by the way, never has. So what are the typical features? We have a sudden onset of destruction, usually, at the base of the building. Uh, We have a straight-down symmetrical collapse, often into the building's own footprint, because demolition waves remove the column supports in a synchronicity. We have a freefall speed, sometimes, uh, through the path of what was the greatest resistance, the thousands of tons of structural steel in the way. And we have a total dismemberment of the steel structure broken up, ready for loading and shipment. There's minimal damage to adjacent structures. And there's sounds of explosions heard by witnesses. There's flashes of light seen by witnesses. Enormous clouds of pulverized concrete and pyroclastic smoke. Uh, Squibs sometimes are isolated explosive ejections that are seen in various parts of the building that are obviously explosions. And, of course, there's chemical evidence left behind in the residue of cutter charges. If you have these things, any of these features, you know you had an explosive demolition. If you had all of them, uh, you are really, really, really sure. There's no question. This is direct evidence of explosive destruction, and guess what? Fire cannot create any one of them, let alone all ten of them. The third worst structural failure in modern history that most every architect and engineer in the United States and around the world know nothing about, which is in and of itself a huge curiosity at least, and um, more to the point, um, what, can be a, what, can, what amounts to a cover-up censorship by the media who knew and reported that day that this building was destroyed. In fact, it was destroyed at 5.20 in the afternoon after the Twin Towers came down. This is a 47-story skyscraper uh, that uh, is a football field in length away from the North Tower. Of course, it was not hit by an airplane, so we don't have the propaganda, the baggage that, uh, that we have with the Twin Towers because we all know how they came down. Is there a sudden onset of destruction at the base of the structure? Let's listen to Dan Rather narrate this as we take what may be our first look at World Trade Center 7's collapse. Now, here we're going to show you a videotape of the collapse itself. Describe that. Now we go to videotape the collapse of this building. It's amazing. Amazing, incredible, pick your word. For the third time today, it's reminiscent of those pictures we've all seen too much on television before when a building was deliberately destroyed by well-placed dynamite to knock it down. Um, Is there a straight-down symmetrical uh, collapse of this building into its own footprint? Let's look from West Street. I'm not quite convinced yet, though. Let's look at side-by-side comparison here. On the left is World Trade Center 7. On the right is a known controlled demolition. Is there any similarity? (laughs) Is there enough similarity to warrant an investigation into the possible use of explosives, particularly given that every high-rise that has come down 
has come down with explosives and that no high-rise has ever come down due to fires. This is NIST's computer model. Compare it to reality. What do you see? I'll point out about six things that I see. First of all, it stops two seconds into the overall collapse. Why? Well, as you can see, it begins to tip over. Had they gone, they can't even get their own computer models to reflect the straight down symmetrical collapse of an engineered patterned set of explosives. And you can see massive bulging and indentation at the bottom, which is not reflected at all in the perimeter steel frame skeleton of the, of the building. What else do you see? We have a massive set of failures of connections of structural steel framing that amounts to a rate of about 400 per second failing beginning here. And look, almost instantly all the way up the building. Structural engineers uh, will tell you that an isolated failure in a structural steel system cannot cause an instantaneous uh, set of failures throughout, vertically throughout the building. And then NIST claims, well, then that travels laterally. But they don't even show us that. But forget that. Just the fact that we have massive failures in the structural system throughout the height of this building in the first uh, few seconds before the overall collapse, wouldn't you expect to be seeing that reflected all the way uh, up to the top and... Uh, and breaking massive numbers of windows on the side. How many windows do you see breaking here? A couple. They should all be tearing apart and massively warping. If we don't take out all 24 core columns and all of the 50 or so perimeter columns at once, virtually simultaneously, what's going to happen? that building is going to fall to the path of least resistance. Asymmetrically, it'll fall over. Look at the geometry of the building's collapse. It's coming down faster and faster. Each second, there's more speed, indicating gravity is in full control here. It's falling as fast as a bowling ball dropping off the side of the building. Do we have enormous clouds of pyroclastic-like uh, smoke and, and dust. Look at this incredible level of expanding gaseous clouds um, racing 35 miles an hour in every direction away from the destruction of Building 7. Uh, and with, with a thick edge and complete uh, set of uh, pulverized solids filling this, um, this, this cloud of smoke. Much hotter than a few small office fires that you saw fueling that cauliflower-like expansion of, uh, of that cloud. Mid-rise, high-rise office buildings do not collapse due to fire. There's 40,000 tons of steel in World Trade Center Building 7. That steel, fireproofed or not, will draw that heat away from its source and distribute it out through that incredible heat sink. Let's take a look in Beijing, where we had a massive fire fully engulfing a 44-story skyscraper. And surely this one is going to collapse. Did it? No. Before 
on the left, after on the right, the building is still standing. And yet, these small office fires brought this building down after burning about four hours. Uh, FEMA came out in 2002 with their report, assisted by the American Society of Civil Engineers. Uh, before the NIST report came out, what did they say? The specifics of the fires in World Trade Center 7 and how they caused the building to collapse remain unknown at this time. Wait, you spent $600,000 on this report and you don't know how the building came down? Our best hypothesis, fire plus random damage, has only a low probability of occurrence. Wait a minute. What do you do when your best hypothesis has a low probability of occurrence? Hmm. Maybe we should come up with a new hypothesis that has a higher probability of occurrence. No. Uh, they say further research, investigation, and analysis are needed to resolve this issue. Unfortunately, though, for those hoping to resolve the issue, all of the steel, except for two pieces, which you're going to hear about tomorrow, was sent to China for recycling. Before the report came, in, came out saying, hey, we don't know how the building came out, maybe we should look at the steel. And what does Jonathan Barnett, who did join the FEMA team, say about a typical investigation? When you have a structural failure, uh, you carefully go through the debris field, uh, looking at each item, photographing every beam as it collapsed and every uh, uh, column where it is in the ground, and you pick them up very carefully and you uh, look at each element. We were unable to do that in the case of Tower 7. After we look at Building 7 and gain the respect of people who didn't know about it, much less its controlled demolition, um, they're much more open to looking at the evidence with the World Trade Center Twin Towers, which is actually even more clearly a controlled demolition, albeit a very different one than we've seen. Let's start with the structure, uh, an amazing structure, unique for its time, an innovative structure that won awards from the American Society of Civil Engineers and won praise from NIST itself in its report this building had 47 massive core columns at the base almost solid steel, 52 inches by 22 inches, thinning to 2 inches at the mid-height, mid and to the lightest part of the structure up at the top, as little as 3 eighths of an inch thick, those steel members. So when you see the building coming down in the videos, realize what we're talking about here. There's more steel on the facade of this building with these 14-inch square uh, tube columns every 3 feet 9 inches marching across this building than there is windows. That collapse had to come down through this steel, or did it? Did the steel have to be removed to make way and cause for the collapse? This is the North Tower developing its collapse on the lower left, you can see the full plume of the upward-outward arching streamers, uh, the, the pyroclastic-like uh, clouds, a, a geometry of fireworks. Compare that to known explosions. Is there any similarity? Here's the North Tower. We're, we're told this upper block drove the rest of the building down. The planes hit here. There's no movement down from here until about now, once again. 
This upper block is destroying itself in what can only be described as a miniature controlled demolition, if you will, of the top 15 stories. There's nothing left to drive the rest of the building down at any speed. Let's, let's look at the structure. The upper portion is the lightest. The lower portion is the heaviest. Uh, let's, let's compare. If you, if you look at Newton's third law of motion, there's an equal and opposite reaction against a lighter object striking a heavier object. Hey, it's the same if you drop the lighter object onto the heavier object. Equal and opposite dis destructive force. Which one will give up the ghost first? Obviously, we're drawing a comparison here. And uh, Mr. Chandler will discuss this more with you tomorrow. But take a stop-start look now. Stop the bands of explosions wrapping all the way around the building like the first responders describe. That upper portion is destroyed first. Let's take a look from below. A lot of violent activity with squibs, isolated explosive ejections occurring underneath. In a moment, we'll talk about the lateral ejection of this material. But take a close look now at the corner where you see developing uh, a series of explosions rapidly advancing down the corner of the building much faster than the rest of these explosions, almost as fast as the free-falling objects. And you'll see tomorrow how fast this building is coming down. How could somebody get into this building or some group of people? Well, if one had access to the core, to the elevator shafts in the building, they would have access to the core columns and beams that occur in the building. And it would be relatively uh, discreet. But if you had an elevator modernization going on, which we did the nine months prior to 9-11, the largest one in the world, in fact, that might give some sort of undercover operation. Uh, so this is, a, this is a source of investigation. Ace Elevator had this contract. They had 85 employees in the building at the time of the first plane impact, and they fled. Um, these are experts that usually help the first responders rescue the victims. Do we have isolated ejections occurring in the building? Well, how about here? Here, here, what are these? NIST tells us that these are puffs of air being produced by that giant piston. Well, we already saw that giant piston was destroyed. Any air pressure would be released upward, most likely. Also, these are occurring up to 60 stories down below this destruction. Let's look at the South Tower. It's hit 30 stories down. It does begin to tip over a little bit, but then it's completely destroyed, almost disintegrated in this cloud. It doesn't end up in some mass on the ground below. So we have asymmetrical damage from the airplanes and the fires and asymmetrical loading from this portion of the building, which is continuing its angular moment momentum, theoretically, uh, falling 22 degrees off the building. And yet, watch what happens below. Complete symmetrical Destruction all the way down to the ground. Just like the first responders described. Pop, pop, pop. Bands of explosions. The truth about 9-11 appears to be much darker than we have possibly imagined. We have seen that explosives were used to destroy these three skyscrapers. And of course, it takes months of advanced planning and engineering to place such explosives. Who had the means, the opportunity the motive to engage in this crime. Who benefited? 
These are the classic questions that crime investigators and journalists should be asking, but are not. And that's the purpose of the Toronto hearings this week. Who had access to these highly secure buildings? Who had access to these extremely sophisticated explosives that you're going to learn about tomorrow from Dr. Niels Herrod? The architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth don't speculate about these issues. We don't have conspiracy theories. In fact, the laws of physics are incapable of caring about conspiracy theories. The evidence we've seen tonight is just a small fraction of the vast body of information that the 9-11 Truth Movement has put together for you. The questions raised are numerous and ominous that have yet to be answered. It's the hope of the 1,500 architects and engineers that I represent that these hearings prove quite successful toward getting all of us a new investigation. Thank you so very much. David Chandler is a physics teacher with postgraduate degrees in education from the Claremont Graduate University and in mathematics from the California Polytechnique State University Pomona. He has published online expositions of the physical principles evident in the collapse of World Trade Center towers. He's author of the article WTC7, NIST Admits Freefall which pointed out errors and discrepancies in the National Institute on Standards and Technology final report on the collapse of World Trade Center 7. His talk focused on his refutation of the NIST account of the destruction of WTC 7. This is a profile of uh, World Trade Center Building 7. It was a tall trapezoidal-shaped building. It's situated a little more than 100 meters north of the North Tower across Vesey Street. It's 47 stories or 174 meters or 571 feet tall. Its footprint is basically the size of an American football field. It has 58 per perimeter columns and 25 core columns. And it was a massive building. The 23rd floor housed a specially reinforced bunker for the New York City Office of Emergency Management. The tenants of the building in 2001 included Solomon Smith Barney, the IRS uh, Regional Council, the U.S. Secret Service, the DOD, CIA, New York City Office of Emergency Management, Security Exchange Commission, and several banks and insurance companies. Needless to say, it was a very security-minded place. On the morning of 9-11, WTC-7 was hit by debris from the collapse of the North Tower. Um, much is made of this, but whereas the Twin Towers were hit by Boeing 767s flying at over 500 miles an hour, the few large projectiles that hit WTC-7 were more like mid-sized trucks, and the fastest of them that I measured were traveling at about 78 miles per hour. That's highway speed. The planes that hit the Twin Towers had about 1,500 times the kinetic energy of the fastest moving debris that hit WTC-7. Ultimately, NIST discounted the debris damage as a factor in the collapse of the building, but many people in their common perception still think that's a major factor. 
There were fires on a limited number of floors that moved around the building, staying in any one place no more than 20 to 30 minutes, exhausting the fuel, and moving on. NIST claims that the northeast corner of the 12th floor had intense, prolonged fires, which caused unprecedented thermal expansion in the beams overhead, pushing a girder off its seat. This failure, they claim, cascaded down several floors, leaving column 79 unsupported and causing it to buckle. The failure of this single column, they say, is what ultimately brought down the building. You're listening to a special summer broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, airing on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on participating community radio stations across Canada. We are also heard on the Progressive Radio Network and our podcast at globalresearch.ca. Newton's laws are formulated in terms of forces, masses, and accelerations. Another parallel set of concepts are the conservation laws. I'm teaching a little physics today. The conservation of energy, conservation of momentum, and conservation of angular momentum are primary ones there. To lift an object requires something we call work. And that amount of work is stored as potential energy as long as the height is maintained. When the object falls, the potential energy is converted to kinetic energy, the energy of motion during freefall. During freefall, all of the potential energy is converted into kinetic energy. But if any of the energy is used for other purposes along the way, such as crushing the concrete or deforming the steel or throwing things around, there will be less energy available to be transformed into kinetic energy. Okay, so I did a little simulation where I hope you noticed as it went through, as it had to do some work on something else, it slowed down the falling ball because some of that energy was getting siphoned off for other purposes. And you can measure the result as the downward, the kinetic energy of the falling ball is thereby reduced. In the case of WTC7, all of the energy was transformed into kinetic energy. So therefore, the work needed to destroy the structure was not available. It had to come from some other source. The fact of freefall is literally proof of demolition. So the energy to do what the falling mass was supposedly doing could not have come from the falling mass. A, fall, a mass in freefall can do no work. And if something was being destroyed it's not being destroyed by the falling mass. It was destroyed to enable the mass to fall. The final draft of the NIST WTC7 report for public comment was released in August 2008, and the final report was, le- was released in November 25, 2008. In both of these, NIST discusses the rate of fall of the building. My measurement tracking the roof line is completely standard is a completely standard way to understand its motion. NIST, however, did not initially do this. What NIST did was measure the overall time between two data points, like starting and stopping a stopwatch. The ending point was when the roof line reached the level of the 29th floor. Their starting point was uh, was 5.4 seconds earlier, 
presumably when the downward motion of the roof, line, roof line began. This they compared with freefall time, which they calculated to be 3.9 seconds. They therefore proclaimed at the time of fall, they therefore proclaimed that the time of fall was 40% longer than freefall time. This is a stunningly invalid and meaningless measurement. Anyone at NIST who had anything to do with this measurement had to know immediately that they were part of a cover-up. The only way to validly compare the motion of the building to the acceleration of gravity is to measure the acceleration of the building. The acceleration is found from the slope of the velocity versus time graph. So in order to find the acceleration, you have to actually know the velocity as a function of time. In other words, you need a lot of data points. You can't get a valid measurement of acceleration from two data points unless you know ahead of time that the acceleration over that interval is uniform. Nobody does it this way because you can't assume a priori that the acceleration in a given situation is going to be uniform. NIST would not do it this way in a legitimate project. NIST desperately wanted to claim the freefall did not occur because they knew that actual freefall would be a smoking gun for demolition. So instead of a head-on comparison of the acceleration of the building to the acceleration of gravity, they, forced, they focused on the completely meaningless notion of freefall time. That's not, I mean, that's a bizarre construct even. You might not know, realize that it is. They said that the fall of the building took longer than freefall time, and to make even this work, they had to falsify their time measurement. The supposed event they chose to start their clock is a point in the middle of an ongoing period of disruption of the building's structure, but it was well before the actual downward motion. On August 26, 2008, NIST held a technical briefing conference, and I was able to ask a question. I cited the fact that a number of people had measured the motion of the building and had determined it was within a few percent of freefall. Yet the report claims it fell 40% slower than freefall. Then I asked, how can such a publicly visible, easily measurable quantity be set aside? Sunder's answer was that freefall happens when there is no structural resistance. Freefall would have taken 3.9 seconds, but their model showed it should have come down in 5.4 seconds. The 5.4 seconds of their model was reasonable because there was structural resistance. There was a series of failures that had to take place, and they were not all simultaneous. The question here was how the video evidence that freefall actually occurred can be set aside. Sunder's answer is that their model showed that freefall could not have occurred. That's his answer. Sunder is elevating their model above the direct evidence, and that is not science. Sunder's response typifies the entire investigation. What they did was they substituted a computer model, or several computer models, for the actual physical evidence. 
taking the evidence out of the picture, insulated them from having to go where the evidence leads because they didn't like what they saw down that road. This model is based on the assumption that WTC7 came down as a natural collapse due to fire, gravity, and buckling columns. Since their model could not produce a freefall collapse, and since the video evidence shows that freefall actually occurred, their model is wrong, and the assumptions behind their model are wrong. NIST does not acknowledge this or try to account for the discrepancy in any way. If explosives were used, you will never discover them in a computer model. Even if the computer model can be made to collapse, it does not mean that's the way the building actually collapsed. Conclusions drawn from computer models can only reproduce what is implied by the assumptions that were programmed in. NIST could have made their model work if, at a mouse click, eight floors of support in the model were suddenly removed. But that would require that the fall of Building 7 be interpreted as a demolition. NIST had no intention of going there. That would have involved culpability, and finding culpability was not part of their mandate. In the August draft of the public comment, the strategy was to find, uh, the strategy was to cover up the fact of freefall. That strategy didn't work because we let them know that there were some of us out here who could actually measure these things for ourselves. In November, the final report uh, changed strategies. This gets a bit complicated. First, they continued to assert that their earlier analysis was correct. You can find the same timing analysis in the final report as in the previous one. They added this uh, more detailed analysis, and that's the way they described it. And so they did this from frame tracking measurements, the same as I did. Then they put their graph in a box, which they divided into three stages. The real fall of the building starts in stage two and continues in stage three. However, they tack on the erroneous early measurements as stage one. They put a smooth curve through the data, which has absolutely no physical significance, except to spin their results to look like a single smooth continuous process. The overall time for their three stages is, as you guessed it, 5.4 seconds. But they did one more thing. Amazingly, someone at NIST added a nice straight red regression line through their stage two data. They even gave the equation of the line. It shows that the slope is exactly equal to the acceleration of gravity. So that red line is a flat-out absolute admission of they're even closer to the acceleration of gravity than my measurement. They are right smack on the money. They're on that number for this accepted as acceleration of gravity in feet units, okay, 32. The red line on this graph means that NIST acknowledges WT7 came down without resistance and without doing any work for over 100 feet. It means all support for eight stories was suddenly removed by something other than the falling mass. It literally means that NIST final report confirms WTC7 had to have been a demolition. The only thing that's relevant here is the slope of the graph. And the fact that the slope, it doesn't matter how it started, how gradually it started, or anything else. If the slope of that graph is the acceleration of gravity, it's in freefall. And it doesn't matter what it did to get into freefall. It's in freefall. So everything else they're saying here is irrelevant. Freefall happened. 
and NIST admits it. At least someone at NIST agrees uh, with, the, with enough clout to put this into their final report and make it stick. NIST has no escape from freefall. The building as a whole entered freefall for a significant period of time over a significant distance. This requires the sudden removal of support, and that requires explosives. The NIST WTC7 report has never been peer-reviewed. There has been no forum for critiquing or correcting the final report. This does not constitute science. It is instead an authoritarian declaration by a government agency that demonstrated repeatedly its unwillingness to consider the one hypothesis that could actually account for their observations. The fact that NIST could not come up with an alternative model that actually works is a pretty clear indication that no alternative explanation exists. Graham McQueen sits on the steering committee for the Toronto hearings. He is a retired McMaster University professor with a PhD in comparative religion from Harvard. He's also a noted figure within the peace movement, having founded the McMaster Center for Peace Studies in 1989. He's an editor for the Journal of 9-11 Studies and a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel. He spoke on the subject of eyewitness evidence of explosions in the Twin Towers. It, seemed to me that it seems to me there's a very common presupposition, occasionally voiced but often unvoiced, and it is this, that on 9-11 everybody, especially those on the scene, knew that the towers came down because they were hit by airplanes. And the airplanes obviously damaged them. And the fires subsequently damaged them. And through some kind of structural failure, which usually people don't want to get into in detail, they came down and it was obvious. And that was the story. And that was the perception. And that was the belief. And that people who suggest controlled demolition brought them down are latecomers. They're revisionists. They're people who came along later with their cockeyed theory. And they perhaps have some special conspirat conspiratorial way of thinking which leads them to unnecessarily complicate a simple situation. The idea that these buildings came down because of explosions and even, more specifically, because of explosives planted in the building was an idea found all over the place on 9-11, on the scene by eyewitnesses, even on television, on the radio, in the paper. Very common. And it's important that we know that. It changes our perspective on this. So here's my first video. The reporter here is N.J. Burkett, and he's working for ABC News 7. So this man uh, had to pick up, he and his uh, companion had to pick up the camera and run for their lives. And uh, I don't see any evidence that Mr. Burkett had a particular conspiratorial frame of mind, and he certainly didn't come around after the event. This is his spontaneous judgment standing in a place of great danger. He says, before the material even hits the ground, a huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. And he runs. And just so you know, he also had to run for his life when the North Tower came down a little bit later. And he described that as a blast. So here we have some people who are off screen in, I assume, their apartment or condo in New York City watching and filming 
in this case, the North Tower in the distance, and we can hear them talking in the background. And it's particularly the man uh, who talks here that I want you to listen to. I assume it's Ma- Matthew Shapoff. Walking and I had my shoes on and I was about to go out the door. I would have been walking around when this happened. Oh, my, oh my God. God. That was a bomb that did that. Oh, God, look at that. That was a fucking bomb that did that. There's no goddamn oh way that could have happened. My next example is from fire department, uh, sorry, firefighter Christopher Fenyo, and this is taken from the FDNY Oral Histories. And he's talking about a period after the South Tower came down, that was the first tower to come down, and before the North Tower came down. So sometime roughly between 10 and 10.30 in the morning, it turns out there was a debate happening among firefighters on the, at the scene. Quote, At that point, a debate began to rage because the perception was that the building looked like it had been taken out with charges. In other words, not merely that it came down because of explosions in some general sense, but that the building had been rigged for demolition. They were debating that before 10.30 in the morning on 9-11. And that's the debate that is still raging 10 years later the debate between some kind of structural collapse hypothesis and the explosion hypothesis. Pent bomb, as Barbara Honiger pointed out, is the FBI uh, acronym for their investigation of 9-11, and it stands for Pentagon Twin Towers Bombing Investigation. When I first heard that years ago, I thought, what a strange title, because the official narrative has no room for bombs at any of the locations. Is it possible that some members of the FBI actually thought that it was a bombing originally, and that's when we go to Jack Kelly's very interesting statement, which you heard yesterday, but I'll give it again. This is on 9-11 itself when he reports live that the FBI's working theory at that point is that, quote, at the same time two planes hit the building, there was a car or truck packed with explosives underneath the building which exploded at the same time and brought both of them down. So that according to him, the FBI had an explosion theory. And when we look at the television footage from that day, we find it's not just the FBI. There were police officers talking about explosives in the building. There were firefighters talking about a theory of explosives in the building. It was all over the place. We begin with the famous clip from the Naudé Brothers film, uh, the two French filmmakers who were there on 9-11 and who uh, interviewed people and so on. So this is from the day. The gentleman, the uh, firefighter on the right is Dennis Tardio, and on the left is Pat Zoda. And let's listen to their description of what the North Tower, because we have to be specific here, what the North Tower looked like as it came down. Made it outside. We made it about a block. We made it at least two blocks, two blocks. and we started running, floor by floor, instead of popping out. It was like it was if, if, if they had detonated. Yeah, yeah detonated. They were planned to yeah. take down a building. Boom, 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 boom. All the way down. I was watching ran. it and running. Just ran up west. And then you just sort of this cloud of shit chasing you down. Okay. Now you know, it's worth pausing to think about what these guys are saying because. I have had so many people dismiss this kind of evidence that I'm dealing with, usually with a wave of the hand, an impatient gesture. 
Eyewitness evidence is notoriously unreliable was the first one. We dealt with that. The second one is I don't care if a few people heard booms in the building. That could have been anything. It could have been anything. That is an extremely unscientific approach. It obviously couldn't have been anything. It had to be something quite specific, and our job is to figure out what that is. So, did these gentlemen talk about booms? Yes. Dennis Tardio uses the term boom, 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 boom. But there's nothing vague about them, nor do they just hear. They see. They both saw the building coming down. They say it quite explicitly. It looked like. They affirm each other's testimony. And what did it look like? They convey this in part with these distinctive hand gestures, like little karate chops. This is what, this is what they both do. Dennis Tardio starts it off, the hand gestures. Pat Zoda agrees, does the same thing. Tardio then does it again. And this is what he said. I mean, this is what apparently this means. It means that there were a series of energetic and distinct events which began high and went down low rapidly and at regular intervals. There's nothing vague about that. That is extremely distinctive. And this is what they say. Zoda, floor by floor, it started popping out. Tardio, it was as if they had detonated, detonated, you know, as if they were planted to take down a building. Boom, 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 boom. Zoda, yeah. Nothing vague. This is rich testimony. It deserves to be pondered. Cannot be easily dismissed. Now, I want to take that hand gesture as a symbol of what it means to look for corroborating testimony. And that's why when we go on to our second rich case, we're now talking about quality testimony, I want to take Paul Lamosi. This man uh, was helping to uh, do a commercial near the World Trade Center on 9-11. He was building a set. And his testimony is very specific and detailed. And he also gets very moved. If you watch the whole thing, begins to cry. He was, he was in the thick of things. And here is a brief clip from what he says. Can you tell us your name? Uh, my name is Paul Lemos. All of a sudden, I looked up and about 20 stories below, that's what it looked like to me, about 75 flights up below the fire, I saw from the corner, boom, 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 boom. Just like 20 straight hits just went down. And then I just saw the whole... The whole building just went, and as the bombs were gone, people just started running. And I sat there and watched a few of them explode. And then I just turned around, and I just started running for my life because at that point, World Trade Center was coming right down, right above us. This is very good eyewitness testimony. This, as far as I can tell, this footage is entirely independent from the Nade Brothers film. That means... This gentleman, Paul Lemos, did not see the, the uh, firefighters, and they did not see him. And here they are independently on the day itself, and we know it's the day itself. We can see Building 7 in the background during Paul Lemos' testimony. The same gesture. Boom, 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 boom. Here's what he says. And by the way, this man doesn't guard himself. The firefighters don't go so far as to say they were explosions. They just say they looked like them. He doesn't guard himself. Here's his gestures. 
Here's his words. All of a sudden, I looked up, and about 20 stories below the fire, I saw from the corner, he's talking about the North Tower, the same building that the two firefighters were talking about. I saw from the corner, boom, 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 just like 20 straight hits, just went down. And then I just saw the whole building just went, and as the bombs were gone, people just started running. And I sat there and watched a few of them explode. And then I just turned around and I just started running for my life because at that point the World Trade Center was coming right down. Very rich testimony. And I'm going to pause for a moment to say something else about it. If you watch the whole interview, he says at one point, he makes a remarkable statement at one point, that while he was there, after he watched the building come down, they, meaning the authorities presumably, pulled in an architect who came up to Mr. Lemos and told him that he had not perceived explosions. <laughs> he had not perceived explosions. They told me they weren't explosions, he said. And then he, he talks about his interaction with the architect. The architect asks him, what did you see? And that's when he goes through the whole thing all over again. And, and the architect says to him, how fast were they? And he says, like firecrackers. Now, there's no evidence that Paul Lemos was ready to give up what he believed he thought he saw. But already on 9-11, on the scene, he's being told what he didn't perceive. Uh, now, I'll, I'm not going to suggest that uh, the uh, architect was there for a sinister purpose, although I suspect he was. <clears throat> but this much at least we can say. There is no way at that point that anyone could have claimed to know scientifically that this man had not perceived explosions. Hadn't studied the rubble, the re physical residue, hadn't done a comprehensive study of video or still footage, hadn't done a comprehensive investigation of eyewitnesses. How on earth could he make that judgment? But there's more. He's interfering with a criminal investigation. I don't care whether you look at this as a homicide investigation or a fire investigation or a bombing investigation. In all three cases, it's clear that eyewitness testimony is important and that you go to the scene and you gather it. You don't tell eyewitnesses what they did and didn't perceive. He's interfering with the investigation. And one of the reasons this is so important is because as I read through the firefighters' oral histories, I could see that in the months, they were collected mainly from about October 2001 to January 2002, and that over those months, some of them are beginning to retreat from their statements. Well, maybe I didn't see that. And during that whole period, they are being bombarded, largely through the mass media, with the structural failure hypothesis. And more specifically, the so-called pancake theory, according to which the towers came down because of pancaking floors. Now, that theory was ultimately given up by NIST. So it's sad when you see these people doubting their own senses in favor of a hypothesis which is thoroughly discredited now. My uh, witness list is not uh, comprehensive. But I will be submitting to the Toronto hearings statements from 156 eyewitnesses. <clears throat> So this will be an appendix to my presentation. It's 35 pages long because it includes the actual words of each of these uh, people. This eyewitness evidence has been ignored or suppressed by the 9-11 Commission and the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And I can be fairly brief here because if we ask 
how many references there are to eyewitnesses evident to eyewitness statements about explosions in the towers in the 585 pages of the 9/11 commission we find that there is one sentence fragment <clears throat> they are discussing firefighters who were in the north tower when the south tower came down and this is what they say <clears throat> Those firefighters not standing near windows facing south had no way of knowing that the south tower had collapsed. Many surmised that a bomb had exploded. That's it, 585 pages. This implies that eyewitnesses who thought there were explosions were in the north tower at the time the south tower came down. In fact, most of them weren't. It also implies that they made a mistake and they made that mistake because they had impede, an impeded view. They weren't near a window. They couldn't see what was going on. This is grotesquely misleading. Many eyewitnesses were looking directly at the towers. And you've all, I've already showed you examples. So whether it's deliberate or not, this is a, an extremely inadequate and misleading way of dealing with this important testimony. If we ask about the Na National Institute of Standards and Technology now, which was given the specific job of figuring out why these building, buildings collapsed, how many references are there to eyewitnesses to explosions in the towers in the 295 pages of the final report? Zero. Not one. Now, you need to know that the 9-11 Commission and NIST had access to the same material that I have access to. It's not as if I have some mysterious sources here. And yet they both miss my 156 eyewitnesses to explosions, not to mention many other eyewitnesses that are not in my list. Whether that's deliberate suppression of evidence, which would be a crime, or whether it's simply massive incompetence, does not concern me today. Because either way, we have an investigation that is thoroughly inadequate, and that's why we need a new one. And I want to begin, I want to end, sorry, with one last guy, Gary Gates. I looked up and the building exploded. The whole top came off like a volcano. And, you know, Gary Gates could, of course, be wrong, but if you ask me if 156 are wrong, I'm going to say no, I don't think so. Thank you. On today's program... We heard presentations from architect Richard Gage, retired McMaster professor of comparative religion Graham McQueen, and from physics teacher and independent researcher David Chandler. Today's presentations are all from a 330-minute DVD entitled The Toronto Hearings on 9-11, Uncovering Ten Years of Deception. You may order your own copy by visiting the website globalresearch.ca. The Toronto Hearings on 9-11, Uncovering Ten Years of Deception, was presented by the International Centre for 9-11 Studies in collaboration with Press for Truth. It was produced by Stephen Davies, Dan Dix, and Brian Law. Music was by Dan Dix. The executive producer was James Gorley. The producer and host of the Global Research News Hour is me, Michael Welch. Thank you for joining us this week. Please be sure to listen to the show next week for Part 4 of this special summer series.